There's a certain kind of science book now, which is anecdote, anecdote, study, 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 anecdote, study, 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 anecdote. And I really, really, really can't stand those books anymore. I wrote one myself. That's what the tipping point is. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. We sell ebooks and audiobooks. We make e-readers and apps for readers all over the world. And we do it because we love reading and we want to make reading lives better. One of the best parts of the work that we do is that we get to talk with authors about their books, as well as the works that shaped them as writers and as readers. This is Cobone Conversation. My guest today is Malcolm Gladwell. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker, where for years he's written thought-provoking pieces that have turned into best-selling works such as The Tipping Point, Blink, and Outliers. He is also the co-founder of Pushkin Industries, which produce podcasts including Revisionist History and Broken Record. And his latest book, The Bomber Mafia, is a product of the convergence of those two streams of work, an audio program that has been encapsulated in both book and audiobook form, The Bomber Mafia, A Dream, a Temptation, and The Longest Night of the Second World War. Malcolm Gladwell, welcome to Kobo. Thank you. We are both products of a Southern Ontario childhood. Uh, you grew up in Elmira. I grew up in Fergus. They are almost equally sized small towns and are close enough together that the high school swim team that I was on used to practice at the Elmira pool because we did not have a pool of our own. Tell me a little bit about young Malcolm Gladwell. I always thought Fergus was like the better version of Elmira. It was prettier, I think. Um, Elora was actually prettier than both, and yes, then yes. and then yeah. Fergus was kind of next to the you know the prettier yeah. thing. Well, you know um, better than me what that what my childhood was like because we had the same childhood. It sounds like um, I think it is just about the best place in the world to grow up. Southern, small town, Southern Ontario. Um, it was, you know, uh, about as free of anxiety as is possible in the modern world. Um, it, in the best Canadian way, th- everything worked. Institutions worked, you know, uh, schools were good. Teachers were fantastic. You know, nobody, nobody beat me up or Rob the house or it was a, it was, um, you know, I was, it was, I never felt, I never felt that I was missing anything. You know, I sort of felt the world that I was given as a child was sufficient. Um, which I think is a, is a wonderful thing to say if you grew up in a very, very small town. And a rare thing. Yeah. And it prepared me beautifully for the rest of the world. Uh, and which is something that I, um, I have become, as I've gotten older, deeply grateful for was the kind of, um, not the, the kind of moral preparation, I think, that it gave me to grow up in a community that takes religious values and ideas seriously, that, you know, the, the, we were growing up in the world of the Mennonites, you know, a, one of the more admirable religious cultures, I think, in the world. Who, who are, you know, really, that, although I was not raised in the Mennonite church, that their approach to life has had a profound effect on me. Um, 
you know, to be surrounded by people who have very, very clear principles and act on them from a very early age is really, that's a remarkable education to receive. And one of the, I think one of the interesting things about that Mennonite community particularly is there is both, there's a set of beliefs, but also an absolute willingness to build structure around those beliefs. Um, you know, organizations and institutions sort of spring up within those communities. And so it must have been interesting to be within that. I was surrounded by dour Presbyterian Scots in, uh, in Fergus. Yes. So it, Fergus. You know, a, a slightly different scene. So I have a bit of a picture in my head of what that life looks like. But you also have family in Jamaica that you would visit mm-hmm. every year. And there was maybe no experience farther away from Elmira than Jamaica in the 1960s and 70s, it, you know, full of politics and music and you know, the drive towards independence. What, what was it like when you suddenly were transplanted from one to the other for a period of time? Um, it's funny, I was interviewing for one of our podcasts, Ziggy Marley, the other day. And Ziggy Marley, who's almost my age, but who, you know, spent a lot of time, he's also a product of Jamaica in the 70s. So, you know, our memories of Jamaica were very, very similar, except his Jamaica is Kingston. My Jamaica is the countryside Mm -hmm. um, where my grandparents were. And there's a world of difference between, my Jamaica was this sleepy, bucolic, uh, you know, it was a, a place it's, you know, it's, and my memories are of my grandparents, you know, these two loving, warm, deeply kind of uh, thoughtful people. It wasn't, you know, simultaneously in Jamaica in that period. There's a, you're right, there's a, there are five different revolutions going on in Kingston. That's not what I was seeing, right? Mm-hmm. I wasn't, reggae music is exploding and, you know, uh, Michael Manley is bringing socialism to Jamaica and crime rates going through the roof and people are emigrating to Canada and the United States by the thousands. That's not what my Jamaica is a little, is a little house on top of a hill. And, and mm-hmm. you can't, from the top of my, from my grandparents' front porch, you could not see another structure except church. We could spend an hour just talking about the the contrast between those two experiences and Elmira versus Fergus, but this is supposed to be about reading and writing. So tell me a bit about your reading life at that time when you were young and growing up. Well, my mother would take me to the library um, every week, I think on Tuesdays or Wednesdays, I've forgotten which. And that was a central part of my life until my father started taking me to the University of Waterloo Library and I would take out books from there. So I was surrounded with books. And it's, you know, once again, to reflect on um, Canadian institutions, I didn't own any books. I didn't own books until I was at the end of high school. It was when I bought my, I, I mean, maybe had a handful of books. My world was of libraries and, you know, it felt like I had, thousands of books at my disposal. I was a voracious reader as a child, and I had these, these two really good libraries at my disposal um, that, I, that I used as aggressively as possible. Um, so, you know, and then before that, my father, who was a great reader, would read, you know, he would read to us. So I, I was introduced to Dickens and C.S. Lewis and 
um, Tolkien and all these people um, from a very, very early age. Um, and so I was, yeah, I would, I would, in retrospect, had a, had a, uh, an exceedingly bookish, and we had no television. My parents declined to get a television. So, you know, you can imagine how even more central books were than to my Im- imaginative life. Once you were turned loose within these two libraries, uh, were you focusing on particular subjects? Were you diving down into, into specific authors or just ranging widely? Reading a lot of history, mm-hmm. um, but mostly and a lot of kind of thrillers and things, um, but mostly reading pretty randomly. I don't know whether I had a kind of singular focus at that age. I just, you know, you'd go to the library and then they would have a shelf with all the new books that just came in. And I would often just pick one off that shelf and explore it. You left home and went to university at the University of Toronto. And you've described university as not being a super productive time for you. And yet a man obviously possessing of great intelligence. So so what didn't click there? I'm going to quarrel with my... I, I think I probably did say that once. What I meant was, it was actually enormously productive, not in the way that I had anticipated. Mm. I didn't find my classes, with some, with a few exceptions, terribly meaningful. But I did find um, the people that I met and talked to incredibly meaningful. So, which I realize is probably the point of college, that the people are ultimately more... I, you know, by the end of college, my last two years of college, I stopped going to lectures. I just didn't, I never liked lectures and I just stopped going. So I wasn't getting out of it. There's a way to approach college. If I was going today, I would go to lectures. I mean, there's a way you would approach college as an adult that, you, that I, that differs, I think, a lot from the way you approach it as an adolescent. You know, I turned 17 in my first year of university. I was very young mm-hmm. and... Um, so I had perhaps a kind of idiosyncratic approach to my education. I liked doing things on my own. And that's a habit that, you know, I went off. I wasn't that I was shirking my work. I just wasn't interested in being spoon fed by professors. But it had the effect of directly or indirectly of leading you into journalism and not through the usual route of small daily paper, bigger daily paper, biggest daily paper, you packed up, left Canada, and started with the American Spectator, a a conservative magazine in the American Midwest. When you look back on that part of your career, how important was that first job? And I'm not just thinking as a foot in the door of journalism, but as as someone who I think has tried to tread a non-traditional journalistic path in a lot of ways. Well, I was... 20 when I started there. And uh, it was a place where you could be a 20 year old. And I had articles published for the American Spectator. Within a month of my arrival, I was being, so it was an insane opportunity. And it just kind of instilled in me the idea that you shouldn't, people are far too timid, I think, about pursuing opportunities. It just was, I got there and turned out to be fine to write stuff. And so I started writing stuff and continued to write with them even after I left the American Spectre. I was fired. But, um, but, uh, I, I, okay, pause for one second. Fired because? 
you know, I, I wasn't very happy in Southern Indiana and, um, I got into a little, I got into it a little bit with some of the, not my editor, who's a lovely person, but, um, you know, with some of the senior people at the magazine, it wasn't a good fit. I mean, I was much too young, but, um, but no, it was just a kind of like, I realized that, you know, you could just pursue things you wanted to pursue and the world would usually accommodate you to one degree or another. So it kind of reinforced the lessons of my childhood, which is if you just do your own thing, things usually turn out all right. <laughs> so that was important. It was not a, it was the opposite of a traumatic experience. It was the, it was an, it was a, it was an inviting warm bath, my first job. Um, and I think some people, it's funny now that I have a company, we had this discussion. Many people talk about, you know, their first jobs, how they still have PTSD from some job they've had. I never had a job that gave me PTSD. I was very lucky in that respect. In Outliers, you popularize the notion of, of 10,000 hours as being the time it takes to achieve true expertise. When did you feel like you hit that stride for yourself as a journalist? I mean, it was 10 years into. Mm -hmm. It was by the end of my time. I left the Washington Post where I was for 10 years because I felt that I had learned what I, all that I could learn. It, but it did take 10 years for me to kind of master, to be able to write, to report quickly and efficiently, to write quickly and efficiently, to express myself clearly and succinctly. Those are all things that I learned at the Washington Post, um, particularly the reporting thing. You know, how to, you know, being a reporter is being a kind of entrepreneur in the sense that you, each story you do is a new creation and you have to figure out how to do it. And I learned that at the Washington Post that you, you have to sit and think about what's the best way to approach this and then hunt down people who will help you and be willing to turn on a dime and pursue a completely different tack if that's the right way to go. You know, all those are things that you learn by doing. And I, you know, I wrote hundreds of stories at the Washington Post. Hundred, I mean, an astonishing number, probably even thousands. Um, and so it was an incredible education. It was grad school. I mean, Bob Woodward, the greatest reporter of my generation, was 10 feet from me. I mean, I could just, if I wanted to, I could just stop and watch him. And I did, and learned an enormous amount just watching him operate. So it was, um, so yeah, by the end, by 10, after 10 years of that, I felt I knew what I was doing. When you found your current journalistic home at The New Yorker, I think a lot of people have an idea of what a Malcolm Gladwell story looks like now. But how long did it take you to find your voice as a journalist there to find the kind of story that worked for you? It didn't take very long, but you know, the kinds of stuff I was doing at The New Yorker were really kind of longer, more personal versions of things I had been doing at The Washington Post by the end. It didn't seem like that much of a departure. It was just all of a sudden I had 8,000 words as opposed to 3,000 words. And I had two months as opposed to three weeks or two weeks. And I had, um, I could travel different places. You know, it's just, it's just about, it was just, I had more resources. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but I didn't feel like I was inventing anything when I was at, at the, at the New Yorker, I just felt like I was 
That's what happens when you give somebody three times as many words. Um, and that's what happens when you give them time is a big thing. You know, if the economics of the job are such that you can spend two months on one story, you're going to get a different story, right? Um, that's the whole point of the New Yorker is that, you know, the whole business model is you get something exceptional if you give talented people more room. And that, that's really what was going on there. And I had an editor, a lovely editor, who was as whimsical as I was, so who encouraged me to be, um, you know, anarchic or mischie mischievous or all the kinds of things I like to be. So that was also a very lucky um, marriage. And then when the tipping point came out in 2000, was that then just a further expansion of that frame? It's, I now have... I have an 8,000 word frame and now I have a 100,000 word frame. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Were there other authors that you looked to when you were starting that first book, when you were starting to look at, okay, how am I going to sustain this idea? How am I going to build this narrative out to this additional uh, scope and scale? I mean, I always give the same names, but they were very important. You know, Janet Malcolm, the New Yorker writer, Janet Malcolm has been someone I've read, been reading my entire career. Not that I try to do what she does because I don't think anyone can do what she does, but um, she just gives you confidence that stories can work at that, at that length and at that, with that level of ambition. Um, Michael Lewis did the same, had the same effect on me. There was a period of my life when I was after Tipping Point, when I got very, very, very interested in Michael Lewis's writing and tried to st sort of study it and understand how he could do what he could do. Um, more recently, David Gran at The New Yorker um, is another writer who is really an extraordinary storyteller. Um, you know, you're, it's like anything, you know, when you're in a, in a craft, you study other craftsmen for kind of ideas and clues about how to do certain things or how not to do certain things. You know, sometimes the example is negative that I don't want to do that. Um, and that's, I have that response as well. What provoked that response? There's a certain kind of science book now, which is study, study, story, study, or anecdote, anecdote, study, 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 anecdote, study, 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 anecdote. <laughs> and yes. I, I really, really, really can't stand those books anymore. I wrote one myself. That's what the tipping point is. Um, and I really don't like that way of writing books. I mean, I don't mean to suggest that they're bad because some people, they're incredibly useful for many, many, many mm -hmm. readers. Um, I appreciate them. They are just not for me. I don't like leaning that heavily on academic research. I think you have to use it creatively. But I think the idea of just kind of lining up a series of studies in a row, explaining each one. It's just not, to my mind, the way I want to tell stories. Is it because it doesn't, it doesn't ask the next question? It doesn't, it doesn't push the material farther? It's essentially a series of citations? I think it's asking more of these studies than they're prepared to give. I mean, these studies are not supposed to be the definitive answer on something. They're supposed to be insights into a question. And I think what you have to do is you have to use them as insight. Um, this is something that teaches us how to think about X. It is not something that settles the question. 
And I, so I dislike it when their studies are used to settle the question. I think that's premature. Since the tipping point, there have been five other books, and it seems like that cycle could have gone on for an entire career. You know, articles, a book every few years, but then you you took this turn and added a new dimension to your output. Can you tell me how Pushkin Industries came about? My friend Jacob, who had been running Slate Media, which had a big podcast business, um, Jacob asked me six years ago, did I want to do a podcast? And I said, yes. And that's where Revisionist History started. And then Slate lost interest in making podcasts. So Jacob said, said to me, why don't we just take Revisionist History and the other podcasts that we have started at Slate and start our own company? Um, and that's where Pushkin came from. It was Jacob's idea. And I joined him very happily. Um, and now we have, was originally it was just me and Jacob and two others. And now it's 50 some odd people. Um, so it's grown quite rapidly. Um, but our real interest now is, is, is audiobooks. Mm -hmm. We want to reinvent the audiobook. I have caught the audio bug and realized that I'm almost more interested in telling stories with my voice than I am on the page. So that's, that's sort of, so yeah, I've sort of left behind that earlier stage in my career. And now I want to do things with sound. And so when you talk about reinventing the audiobook, what doesn't work about the audiobook today? Well, most of them, my old audiobook, my own audiobooks in the past included, not to talking to strangers, but ones before that. I think they're embarrassing. It's just, you put a guy in a sound booth for four days and he reads, he just reads his text. Like, what a, why would you do that? Why would you, why wouldn't you take advantage of the form? You, you have a form where, first of all, you're inside someone's ear. So you have an intimate position. And two, why, why wouldn't you use all the tape that's available to you? So the, the Bomber Mafia, for example, I don't read you and then Curtis LeMay said and read you his quote. I go and find the tape and have Curtis LeMay tell you himself. You might as well, if we're going to do audio, let's hear everybody, right? Let's have music. Let's have archival tape. Let's... Let's take advantage of the medium. I mean, it's like, it's the equivalent would be somebody wrote an art book and doesn't have any pictures. Like, why would you have pictures? You, you're producing a book. The pictures are the one thing you can do. Have some pictures, right? And it, can you imagine if we had 100 years of art books and then suddenly in 2021, some upstart company came along and said, we're going to put pictures of the paintings we're talking about in the art book. And everyone was like, I've got this great idea. Turns out we can take a photo of the art and put it in the book and you'll know what we're talking about. And we're like, whoa, what a radical concept. Well, we just think an audiobook should be more than someone reading in a sound booth. So then have you approached the kinds of stories you do differently because you're thinking about them as something that lives in audio, like from a structural perspective, from a source perspective? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yes, that's the key. You put your finger on the key insight. Not every book has to be an audiobook. Mm -hmm. If I'm writing a, if I'm writing a book about 
you know, an analysis of the economic mistakes made by the Canadian government in the period 1990 to 2016. It's not an audiobook. There's no advantage to making that an audiobook. I want to have someone charts. will try. <laughs> someone will try. But I want to have charts and graphs and all kinds of things that lend themselves to print. We're doing an audiobook with um, Paul Simon, um, the singer, mm -hmm. songwriter. Um, that's not a print book. Why would you do a print book on Paul Simon? We sat down with him for 40 hours. We, he plays for us. We play, find out old, we found old archival tape. We, we find, we talk to other musicians who like, you use, he's, he's a musician. So that's a perfect audiobook, right? Like do an audiobook with a musician, do an audiobook with a comedian. You know, he's got jokes to tell you want to hear his voice or her voice. Um, but don't do an audiobook with an economist. Why would you bother? Um, so it's like, you're absolutely right. The, the question we start, you start with the question, what is the natural home for the story I want to tell? Some stories, the Barber Mafia works in both. It, the, I think it works as a book and it works as an audiobook, but they are very different. I mean, it is a completely different experience to listen to the audiobook of the Barber Mafia than it is to read the physical book. I was going to say, in the middle of the fifth season of Revisionist History, after an episode on a lost Van Gogh painting and an episode on the Bolivian elections, we we suddenly meet the Bomber Mafia and Curtis LeBay. And there wasn't anything about that particularly that said, and now we are going to start a series of episodes that will come a become a book. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, although it was clear you were working through a much larger story arc than summarizing a the, the story of a lost Van Gogh. So what was the genesis of that story? And when did you know that it was something bigger that could mm -hmm. use that larger frame of, you know, living as a podcast, but then also being a standalone work on its own? I think it's because I felt I had... In the podcast, I had told the end of the story. I did three episodes on really the firebombing of Tokyo in March of 1945. But that is an episode in a much longer story that begins in the 30s. And so I was, some part of me was dissatisfied when I finished those three episodes for my podcast because I felt like I'm just nibbling at this. This is, I haven't told you anything. I haven't told you how we got to Tokyo, right? I just plunked you down in the middle of Tokyo in Guam. And, and so, and then I realized there was all this incredible tape of these characters. Um, and I, you know, and there's this incredibly romantic thing about these guys at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. Um, and I just said, you know, there's just a much bigger grander story here. So why don't I go back and do it again, only this time at five times the length or four times the length. So it was just that, it was just the story. It's just about this, you know, all these things about you get to know the story and you become friends with the story. And then you begin to understand the best way the story should live in the world. And this struck me as something that ought to live in the world at greater length and with a with a, that I'd written, like I said, written the ending. I needed the beginning. Growing up as a 
kid in southern Ontario in the 1970s and 80s. I was fascinated by the Second World War. There were mm-hmm. people around who had fought in it and for whom it wasn't a distant memory. And it was closer historically then than Miami Vice episodes are to today. And it seemed like every library, every grown man's collections of books at home included books on the on the Second World War. It was it was everywhere. And yet this was a new story for me in uh, in a lot of ways. And so I'm I'm wondering what made you latch onto this particular sort of s- series of historical episodes and decide that it needed more exploration. Because it's rare, it has so many elements. The story has so many elements that are catnip. Uh, you know, you have these two antagonists, Curtis LeMay and Haywood Hansel, these two very vivid, extraordinary characters who come into conflict. Not just conflict with each other, but conflict with themselves. So internal conflict as well. And you have, you had this sort of group of outsiders, this group of renegades who are trying to reform what they believe to be a morally imperfect status quo. You've got a, technolo- a new technology that's promising a revolution. You know, this, I, could, I could keep going. You know, you rarely get a story. There are all these kind of natural storytelling elements. Um, I'm now doing another... I'm going to do one episode of my podcast this season on the uh, the Los Angeles Police Department, and I intend to turn that into an audiobook. And it doesn't have the same elements; doesn't have technology, not you know, it doesn't have. But it has, as I think about the story and learn about it, the more I learn, the more I realize, oh, it's there's a, it has all these kind of mythic elements that you want in a story. It has these larger-than-life characters who are in, involved in kind of consequential conflict. Um, it has, you know, it has a kind of a, an unknown hero. It has a, I could go on and on down the list. It has, um, it takes, a lot of this has to do with place. You know, the Bauer Mafia, the book takes place in Guam, it takes place in over the skies of Japan, and it takes place in Montgomery, Alabama, um, and it takes place in, you know, in the airfields of southern England in the middle of the Second World War. Those are all fantastic places for a story, um, and you know, the LAPD story. It takes place not just in LA, but it takes place in different parts of LA, like. LA is really five cities, not one. And each of those cities has a role in the story. When you realize, oh, I can take you places, right? And those places are meaningful. Just as in the Bara Mafia, Guam, Guam is supposed to come alive for you. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a little bit of tape in the audio. I said the, uh, it's in both versions, obviously, but in the audio, in the audio version, it's incredibly poignant where this woman who was a nurse on Guam describes what it was like to live in those huts with the rats running over your blankets at night. Um, And just that little, you know, hearing her 
many years later remembering that detail and you're realizing she's thousands of miles from home in the middle of middle of the Pacific Ocean, you know, involved in a war that she doesn't know how it's going to turn out. Um, she doesn't know if she's going to get bombed by, so, you know, and she's supposed to wake up at 6 a.m. and tend to the wounded and, the, and there's rats running over her, her bed. You know, it's like, just like kind of, just gives you that little, that one little detail just tells you so much about what people went through. That's that, whenever you can bring that level of detail to a story, the story suddenly takes on another dimension. For people that haven't encountered the book or the, the podcast yet, uh, the Bomber Mafia describes this group of people who come together in a way to try and create this idea of precision bombing, that you, you don't have to level whole cities. You can, in fact, be very surgical about where bombs drop and use that as a way to hopefully end wars faster. And there were a, there were a couple of things that came up to me early in the book um, at the very beginning, you described just how ludicrously difficult it is to drop a bomb on a target from the air. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the premise of the bomber mafia was to you know, do this thing that had really never been done before for the first time using new technology, using new bomb sites. And what, what I hadn't realized was that this, this belief began with the desire to avoid wanton destruction. You know, this all grows out of the carnage of the First World War. I think this is a generation that was so shaken by what happened and by the kind of senselessness of the slaughter in the First World War that they were determined that they to do something about it. They did not want to repeat that experience. And the Bar Mafia are a group who think that technology is the way out of that problem. The way to not have a First World War again is to fight the next war with a set of tools that allow us to behave with some degree of humanity, even as we are trying to defeat our opponent. So it's like, it, it's, it's hard for us today, I think. Now, these are guys, like I said, in the 1930s, and they're they're a group of people who are obsessed with airplanes at a time when the airplane is an exotic thing. It's not a, if you talk to an army general in, of almost any army in the world in 1935, they would, and ask them about the potential of airplanes um, to transform warfare, they would have rolled their eyes. Didn't, they didn't. They thought the air, airplanes were interesting and novel, novel and, you know, curious objects. They did not think that they would be organizing military campaigns around aircraft. They were, aircraft were these flimsy things made of wood and canvas. And the, it's ludicrous to, to, this, to these people to think that these, these, these little flimsy objects could play a big role. The Bomber Mafia disagreed and were convinced that they could, planes could advance to the point where they could not just dominate wars, but make every other form of fighting war obsolete. No more destroyers. No more tanks, no more infantry marching, no more heavy artillery, all gone. All you would need is a bomber, right? That's what these guys thought. And it's funny, and they're, you know, 
they're in Montgomery, Alabama. And I say this only because I was in Montgomery, Alabama yesterday. <laughs> and you have to be in Montgomery, Alabama to go there to understand just the absurdity of this. It is the middle of nowhere and particularly was the middle of nowhere in 1935. So a bunch of guys in the sleepiest town in the South are having, are engaged in the grandest obsession of their era, right? It's fantastic. It's like, how can you not love that story? You also do a wonderful job of describing just how absurd the war in the Pacific was during the Second World War, the incredible distances involved, the idea that no two combatants had ever faced each other from across such vastness. And then these guys were trying to figure out how to how to do a war within those constraints. Yeah, it's um, it's without precedent. You, you know, Japan knew nothing about the United States, relatively speaking. The U.S. knew nothing about Japan, relatively speaking. And the closest the United States can get to Japan is Guam, which is a good 1,500 miles away from Japan. And they can only get that close after three years of some of the most vicious fighting of the war. They start out, at the beginning of the war, the closest they can get is Hawaii. Hawaii is an awful long way from Japan. If you ever made that journey, it is like, so it's like the scale of this, we're fighting across the Pacific. I mean, it's just nuts in retrospect. Um, and it never, now it's, you know, now we don't think of much of these kinds of distances, but in 19, 43 or 44, these difference, these distances are serious impediments to doing anything. I mean, you know, even if you chose to fight the war entirely on the sea, you would be sailing for weeks to get your fleet in place against Japan. Now we're talking about moving men and material and weapons and planes and mechanics and hospitals and nurses. I mean, on and on and on. Thousands of miles across the Pacific to a little tiny island called Guam and setting up shop there. And, you know, building an air, you know, to build airports out of the jungle, which they do in a matter of months. I mean, this is, the whole thing, the whole thing is just, in retrospect, is, is insane. The story comes to center on General Curtis LeMay, and he is the archetypal cigar-chomping general. He may even be the reason we have that archetype. And he's been portrayed and characterized in various forms and movies and books ever since. Uh, but his yeah, he becomes central to the story. And the, the subtitle of the book is A Dream, A Temptation, and the Longest Night of the Second World War. If the dream for LeMay and for the rest of the bomber mafia is precision bombing, mm -hmm. tell me about the temptation. In the back of their mind was the very real fear that they would never get it right. And if you don't get a strategy right in war, not only does your side lose, but your career is over. Right? The stakes are significant. There was another way for them to fight the war against Japan that was not morally directed and did not rely on a high stakes technological project. 
bomb the Japanese into oblivion. That was a temptation. Do you give up your ethical approach to try to reform war and just go back to the old ways of doing it, right? If you go back to the old ways, you'll probably win. You'll certainly get promoted. You'll be a hero, but you will slaughter hundreds of thousands of your enemy, civilians, right? Enemy civilians. That's, that is a temptation along biblical lines. And that's, I mean, I, I bring in this Jesus in the desert and the devil offering him dominion over all he sees, if only he will pledge allegiance to the devil. That's the choice they were given, right? And it's not, uh, it is, it's, it's an impossible choice, right? Do you want to win or do you want to stay true to your conscience? Several people end up being faced with that choice in different ways over the course of the book. And LeMay was the one who, who crossed over that line, who decided that, yes, this was the, this was the way, this was the only way to do his job, to, to end the war as quickly as possible. Is the, is the book about that crossing of lines and how when you cross them, you have to adopt a whole logical framework that makes the next thing possible and the next thing possible and the next thing possible? Yeah, I mean, the book is, it is about the difficulty of squaring your conscience with problem solving. To me, everything that they're dealing with in this book or everything they're dealing with in the bombing campaigns of over Japan and Europe in the Second World War are versions of moral arguments that were that are even more urgent now, right? Like, you know, the, and I love, I fell in love with the Bomber Mafia because I felt like there aren't technologists like that today. Mark Zuckerberg is not agonizing about the moral dimensions of his innovation the way the Bomber Mafia were. And I kind of wish he did. I don't know whether that would produce a different outcome, but I would feel comforted by the idea that he was at least entertaining those sorts of moral questions in his approach. One one thing that struck me about um, about LeMay and especially about the, the the last segment of the book was how how little official strategy was behind what he did. You know, once he had figured out the hammer, which was we can use incendiary weapons on on Japanese cities, he just started hammering nails. And how yes. few people in Washington, D.C. and the leadership in the, of the Allies knew what he was up to. And so over the summer, he destroyed all of these cities. And you suggest that it wasn't necessarily because they didn't know what was happening. It was that they couldn't imagine it. They couldn't conceive of what was being done. Yeah. So it wasn't like it wasn't showing up in reports. It just it didn't land for them. Something happens when we're immersed in that kind of trauma for too long. And at the end of the Second World War, something happens where LeMay, LeMay goes on this kind of murderous rampage across Japan. And in the summer of 1945, bombs 66 Japanese cities, killing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Japanese civilians. And as you say, it's like, 
it's his own project. It's not something that anyone in Washington seems to realize is happening. He's just off on his own in the middle of, he's like Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. He's off on his own, just launching one napalm attack after another on Japan. It's nuts in retrospect. He's just hammering away. And the human costs of that hammering are appalling, truly appalling. And I think it's about this kind of fatigue that takes place at the end of these, you know, we're seeing on a very, very, this is a dumb analogy, but I sort of feel like there's a version of this now going on now with the pandemic that once fatigue sets in, it's just like all bets are off. You know what I mean? Like you just, I don't think it's any coincidence that the United States right now is having this string of mass shootings after not having them for quite some time. You know, we've had one a day for the last, whatever it is, 10 days, a week, I can't remember. Just like everyone's at the end of their tether. Um, and that's a minor version. Well, everyone's at the end of their tether at the end of the Second World War. And crazy stuff started to happen. Um, and LeMay was just kind of unhinged. He was essentially indifferent to the nuclear attacks on Japan. Uh, you, know, you describe it as they were someone else's job. And, it, and that seems crazy until you realize that he's essentially burning down a city every night. Yeah. I mean, whatever qualms he may have had about the wholesale slaughter of Japanese civilians were thoroughly extinguished by the early summer of 1945. So when the two atomic bombs were dropped in August, I mean, do you think Curtis LeMay lost a single moment of sleep over that? No, I mean, he was like, why, how, you guys, you only see what you guys did with the atomic bomb. What I've been doing all summer is that you dropped two bombs and I dropped thousands. But it's the same thing, same effect. We're just, we're just burning down cities. I mean, it's to his mind. And I think he was, could totally understand where he's coming from. I don't know. Is there a moral distinction between dropping one atomic bomb on Hiroshima and dropping 10,000 uh, canisters of napalm on Tokyo? No, it's the same thing. The book ends before the next chapter in LeMay's life, when he becomes the architect of Strategic Air Command and, by extension, America's nuclear strategy. He was a key figure in the Cuban Missile Crisis. His name is synonymous with the idea of mutually assured destruction, and all of this from a person who had begun with this idea of precision and ended in this this place of essentially annihilation. Do you think that all of that flowed from that first decision about bombing Tokyo? Like it really, he, he left the dream behind. LeMay was just never a part of that. I don't think he had the imagination, the moral imagination, to think that war could be transformed in a way that made it more kind of ethically palatable. What I think his wartime experience does is, um, as I said before, extinguish whatever remaining qualms he may have had about the wholesale slaughter of civilians. I mean, I don't really go into Korea much, but um, if at all, I can't remember. The Korean War makes the Second World War looked like a picnic. The U.S. Air Force in Korea reduces an entire country to rubble. 
burns it down with napalm. Um, in fact, the bombing ends in North Korea because they run out of targets. The Air Force quite literally says, we can't do any more bombing because we have nothing left to bomb. Imagine that, right? And then we wonder why the North Koreans are so antagonistic towards us. Well, we did reduce their entire country to rubble just 70 years ago. Going back to something you said earlier about this being a, um, a book about technology, one of, the, one of the things that comes through is the sense of how difficult it is to see the ramifications of technology in advance. Uh, you know, certainly the people who were working on testing napalm in the middle of a soccer field at Harvard had no sense of what they were unleashing in the world. When you, when you think about people like you know, Mark Zuckerberg, about the people that are leading social media companies, about the, the people that are you know, collecting and storing, manipulating personal data, are we in that same headspace of you know, we can certainly see what we're working on and what we're tinkering with, but we don't have sense of what the world looks like after we've unleashed it. The least trustworthy predictions about the future come from the people who are driving the future. So if you want to know about what our media, social media landscape looks like, the last person you should ask is Mark Zuckerberg. It's going to look like. He's not, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a prisoner, appropriately, I suppose, of his own little universe, right? He's trying to do Facebook. That's been an issue over and over again. You know, I, I have an episode of my podcast in the season of revisionist history. It's all about autonomous vehicles and all about, without giving it away, about how the people pushing autonomous vehicles have one very, very large blind spot about the limitations of them. And I don't really fault them for it. That's what, that's how innovators work. Nothing that makes you a good innovator also makes you good at diagnosing blind spots in your own passion, right? It's like um, other people have to do that. So when I say that I think this book is about today, it, it is because it's because the kinds of the kind of um, quagmire, moral quagmire, everyone gets caught up in at the end of the Second World War, are the, that's similar to the kind quagmires we get caught up in now all the time because we're now innovating on a scale far greater than they were back in the 1940s during the war. So these things are going to pop up every time we turn around. Malcolm, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. I've been speaking with Malcolm Gladwell about his new book and audiobook, The Bomber Mafia. Find it in the other books we've talked about here, along with previous episodes of the show at kobo.com slash conversation, or check the show notes. Make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen and leave us a review because it helps other readers find us. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.